Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, December the 5th, 2022. The year's coming to an end, uh, perhaps a little bit more positively on the political front than some of us feared a year or two ago. Uh, next week, I'm going to be in New York City. I'm involved with a debate at Intelligence Squared about whether or not the January 6th insurrection, or whatever you want to call it, was an existential threat to American democracy. Of course, January 6th, 2001, was the climax, again, if that's the right word, in the transfer of power between the Trump and the Biden regime. We've done lots of shows on it, actually. We did one earlier this year with Luke Mogelson, a New York Times, New Yorker writer. Uh, he has a book on January 6th called The Storm Is Here. And we've done lots of other um, lots of other shows on this period, the period between uh, the election of 2020 and the coming to power of Biden, one with uh, Robert Draper recently, a couple of weeks ago, he has a new book out on the Republican Party, Weapons of Mass Delusion. Um, fortunately, there was a relatively peaceful transfer of power uh, between the Trump and Biden administrations, if you take out January 6th. And that's what we're talking about today. Uh, my guest is David Marchik. Uh, he's an academic at came uh, at American University in Washington, D.C., where he's talking to us from. And he's the author of a really interesting new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, An Oral History of America's Presidential Transitions, which is based on a podcast show, which he did, called The Best of Transition Lab. Uh, David, what's your take on... Um, February, uh, January 6th, uh, 2021. Was it an existential threat to American democracy? Was it one of the darkest points in this transition uh, between presidential administrations in, um, in the periods that you've studied? I know you pick out two in particular, which were particularly problematic, the transition uh, uh, from... Um, from Buchanan to Lincoln and also from Hoover to, to, to FDR. How does the Trump-Biden transition compare? Well, thank you for having me. Let, me. let me refer to a much more eminent historian and someone who chronicles American history more than I have, which is Ken Burns, the great documentarian. For my book and my podcast, I interviewed him twice. The first time was in the summer of 2021, and we were talking about the arts of transitions, the, the mechanics of what makes transitions better, smoother, and faster. And he paused and said, Dave, you know, you're focused on the mechanics, but let's step back and think about the 231 years since George Washington handed the reins to John Adams. No arms have been raised, no troops have been alerted, no shots have been fired, and nobody's died. And so this miracle which we call the peaceful transition of power has occurred for 231 years without those problems. I had him on again after January 6th and I said, Ken, last time you were on, you said no troops had been alerted, no shots had been fired, no one's killed. 
what's your perspective? And he said, you know, Dave, I've chronicled the worst parts of American history. And this is one of the worst things that's ever happened in the United States. And so I think Ken Burns said it best. It was an exceptional dark day in American history and hopefully one that never repeats itself. What is it about Burns, David, that makes him so, I mean, he's obviously a very prominent uh, documentary filmmaker. What, what is it about him, do you think, that attracts him to, to this subject? Well, I think that at his core, Ken is a storyteller. He creates narratives that, that capture the imagination of the American people. He takes different subjects and still videos, still, still photography, and, you know, tens of millions of people have watched his Civil War uh, video, his Civil War series, which goes on for hours and hours. And so at his core, he's a storyteller. And what we tried to do in the book is also tell stories, stories about this vulnerable moment when one president hands off power, hands off the baton to another president. At the strike of noon on January 20th, if there's a new president, an entire government turns over. And our adversaries, our adversaries know that this is a vulnerable time in the United States, and they've targeted our country to try to take advantage of us at this time. And therefore, this peaceful transfer of power is really important for our democracy and the foundation of our country. Say that again. I, I don't understand what you, you, your adversaries, what does that mean? Adversaries. So I'll just give you a couple examples. We know that during the Bush to Obama transition, that was pretty much the gold standard of transitions. We were in a period of two wars and a financial crisis. And President Bush said, I'm going to hand off the reins to whomever wins, whether it's John McCain or Barack Obama, in a way that launches their presidency, whether I agree with them or not. Obviously, he was supporting McCain, um, but he wanted Obama to do well if he won. So he brought the national security officials from his outgoing administration together with the national security officials of the incoming Obama administration prior to January 20th and said, let's go through some scenario plannings and some, what he called it a tabletop exercise, where they basically did role playing of what would happen if a terrorist attack would occur in the United States. Well, on January 19th, there was a credible threat that was picked up through our intelligence agencies that some Somali nationals were going to conduct a terrorist attack on the mall during the inauguration of Barack Obama. And so the Bush administration pulled together those same officials, the outgoing Bush team and the incoming Obama team, and went through a bunch of scenarios. What happens if there's an attack on the mall? What does Obama do? Does he stay at the podium or does he leave? How do we uh, protect our citizens and protect our democracy? And we know that that individuals and interests that are adverse to the United States chose that time to take, try to take advantage of the United States. And fortunately, the terrorist attack did not succeed, but there's a long history of bad people and bad actors trying to do bad things at this point in time when there is a peaceful transition of power. Well, you, you say a long history. Uh, uh, how well known, firstly, was this Somali plot? And secondly, what what what, what are other examples? Uh, seems to me you're perhaps over-dramatizing this a little bit. I mean, every, every country goes, has this transition of power. Maybe 
the American system is slightly clunkier for one reason or another, but it's hard to imagine there being plots on every uh, transition of power from president to president. Well, let me give you a couple examples of monumental activities that happened during a transition. So let's go back to the Carter-Reagan uh, transition. Uh, we know that there was an Iranian hostage crisis. And on the day Reagan was inaugurated, the Iranians released the hostages. Now they did that for a reason and they held the hostages for a particular reason during the election and during the transition. We also know that in previous transitions, for example, the Soviet Union has cracked, when they were in existence, cracked down on dissidents and Polish uh, uh, solidarity actors during the transition because they believed that the American people would be focused inward, the American government would be focused inward. So there is a long history of, of activities going on in this period of time. Even going back to um, the, the Hoover to Roosevelt transition, this was not something that was targeting the United States, but it shows the delicate time of the transition. In the four months between the time that Hoover, uh, that Roosevelt was elected and he, was, he came to power, the Great Depression peaked. We had bank runs in 25 states. Hitler came to power. The um, Japanese exited the League of Nations, beginning their imperial march. And all of this happened during the transition when there was an outgoing president, an incoming president, and you had a period of, of four months where there was policy in action at a time with, with calamitous events happening around the world, including the United States. David, why is there such a long period in terms of this transfer of power? Why can't it happen as in other countries, simply overnight? One group leaves, another comes in. Is it because of the length of the presidential campaign? Is it because of the size of the government or the country? Well, it's, it's an accident of history. It's the way our constitution was designed to have an election in the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And then the inauguration is January 20th. The inauguration used to be in the first week of March. So Roosevelt was the last president to be inaugurated in March. After that, uh, a constitutional amendment was passed and the, the inauguration date was moved to January 20th. So there's a 75 to 77 day period between the election and the inauguration. And that's the way our framers and the Congress and our constitution. In, in retrospect, though, is it a good system? I mean, why couldn't one group leave and one come in, close the office at five o'clock in the afternoon and at nine o'clock the next day, the new group comes in? Well, that's the way it occurs in most democracies around the world. In the UK, for example, there can be an election and a new prime minister can come in two days later. In the UK, a new prime minister comes in with a small team at 10 Downing Street and then new ministers, and each minister may have one or two aides. In the United States, 4,000 political appointees leave office on January 20th, and a new president has to appoint 4,000 new political appointees, including hundreds at the White House. It takes the president years to fill all those positions. In fact, some presidents have never filled all the positions because by the time they start making headway, officials start to leave. So one of the things in my book that we recommend is that the number of political positions are reduced and also the number of political positions that require Senate confirmation is reduced so that it's much easier and much more efficient for a new president to get his or her team in place.
You uh, you mentioned Ken Burns earlier. Your book um, is an oral history. You have all sorts of wonderful characters in the book who you talk to, everyone from James Baker and Andy Card to uh, Chris Christie, uh, John Podesta, many of the most influential figures. How, how um, and I mentioned earlier, David, that, that, that the book came out of a, a podcast series you did on the transition of power. What's your take on the value of an oral history, of recent history, American political history like this? Why did you choose the oral history versus a more just traditional history of the transfer of power from American administration to administration? So we launched the podcast series about a year in advance of the election. And what our goal was to do was to examine each modern transition from President Carter forward. President Carter was the first, candidate Carter was the first candidate to allocate real time and resources to transition planning. And then we wanted to study the historic transitions, Buchanan to Lincoln and Hoover to Roosevelt, and then different aspects of transitions like personnel, policy, um, ethics, and other issues. And what happened is because of January 6th, because Trump did not recognize the outcome of the election, because there was such tension over the, the peaceful transfer of power in 2020, the subject was of great interest and the podcast took off. And so we decided to take some of the transcripts of the podcast, publish them, and then create a narrative in front of each of the, of the transcripts to kind of frame what happened in each transition and frame the issues. And the University of Virginia uh, has a wonderful center called the Miller Center for Studies. It's a presidential study center and they do oral histories. So they do oral histories from each administration where each of sometimes presidents, but more importantly, each of the aides and cabinet officers come to Charlottesville and they're interviewed for hours and hours. And that oral history is available for researchers and scholars to study for the future. And so we thought that this book and the oral history that we uh, we have in it would be a good part of that uh, oral history series. And the University of Virginia Press agreed. I mentioned the, um... Uh, the the uh, the Buchanan Lincoln transition. Um, you rate it the worst of all time. Why? What happened? Not everyone will be familiar with this transition. Okay, That's so this the right is word. There may be maybe a better word to describe it. Though. So this is 1860, and between the time that Lincoln is elected and he's inaugurated in March, seven states seceded from the Union. The Buchanan government was paralyzed. Half of the cabinet basically showed their loyalty to the South. The Congress didn't do anything. Jefferson Davis was elected president in the South and there were multiple assassination attempts against Lincoln. All the while that Lincoln was across the country in Springfield, Illinois and didn't actually get to Washington until right before the inauguration. So in the book, we interview Ted Widmer, who's the author of a wonderful book called Lincoln on the Verge, which describes a train trip that Lincoln took from Springfield, Illinois to Washington over 13 days, where he found his voice. Essentially, he didn't campaign for office. Candidates didn't really campaign then. He didn't do a lot of speeches. He did one debate in the primary, 
And otherwise, he wrote letters and, and you know, but he didn't give a lot of speeches. During this 13-day train trip where he had crowds of 15,000 people in Springfield, Illinois, and 25,000 in Cincinnati, and 50,000 in Buffalo, 500,000 in New York City, he found his voice, and that was essentially his transition. And the fact that seven states seceded during this four-month period easily makes it the worst transition in history. I particularly enjoyed um, uh, your 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 feature on Hoover to FDR. You have uh, on the show Eric Rauschway, the author of Why the New Deal Matters, an expert on this period. You call the Hoover to FDR transition the second worst transition. You mentioned earlier part of that is due to the the international system, Hitler coming to power, um, and the consequences of the Great Crash. Uh, but the American system seems to have held up pretty well domestically in America in that period. Is that fair? Were there riots? There was no January 6th in the um, in the uh, uh, Hoover to FDR transition. Was there, in spite of the enormous poverty of, of Hoovervilles outside city, of hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of people losing their homes, their jobs, their families, dramatic impoverishment. So let's talk about what happened and why that was the second worst transition. Again, I mentioned the Great Recession peaked, the Great Depression peaked during the transition. Unemployment peaked. We had run to- And remind us of the dates, uh, David. So this was 1932 to 1933, November of 1932, Roosevelt was elected and he's inaugurated March 5th of 1933. So banks failed during this period of time. Therefore, people lost their houses. Farms failed. We had starvation in the country. And people died because of the lack of congressional support. Hoover not only didn't intervene in the economy, his idea of helping Roosevelt was to try to convince Roosevelt to abandon the New Deal. He looked at Roosevelt, who was you know, had polio and was in a wheelchair as someone of feeble body and feeble mind and not someone who was up for the presidency. And so he didn't cooperate with Roosevelt all the time. So Eric Rauschway, I asked him, what was the impact of the lack of cooperation? And Eric, Professor Rauschway said, well, the, the Great Depression deepened, it lengthened, our recovery was slowed, more people lost their housing, more people lost the ability to feed themselves and their families, and people died. If you compare that with the, with the Bush to Obama transition, which occurred during the next worst financial crisis in the United States, this was 2008, the Great Recession. You remember Lehman and, and other, Bear Stearns and other banks failed. We had huge unemployment. We had people lose, millions of people lose their houses. Bush and Obama cooperated during the transition. They tried to collaborate on, for example, saving the auto industry, passing legislation, implementing the, the TARP, which was the rescue legislation. And most importantly, they tried to send a signal to markets and to Americans and to the world that our government was going to collaborate and work together with the outgoing and the incoming. And that collaboration shortened the Great Recession it allowed Obama to accelerate the recovery and allowed Obama to get a jumpstart on his presidency 
and therefore help the American people recover from the great crisis in a way that the Hubert Roosevelt transition did not. So that's the lesson of history. Are you suggesting then, um, David, or is do you think that um, Rashua is dis- suggesting that one of the reasons why the Depression lasted so long was because of this dysfunctional handover of power between the Hoover and uh, FDR administrations, that Herbert Hoover was responsible in part for this? Absolutely. So Roosevelt and the head of the Federal Reserve, Marinel Eccles, were begging Hoover to declare a bank holiday, to basically shut the banks so there wouldn't be bank runs and banks wouldn't fail, to preserve the banking system so that people would have access to cash and access to their savings and not lose their savings. And he, he refused to do that during the, the transition and required Roosevelt to do that right after he got into office. And that freezing combined with the 100-day plan that he put together where they passed essentially the New Deal, put in place the process which eventually would allow the United States to get out of the Great Depression. If there was more cooperation during the Hoover to Roosevelt transition, and if Hoover did many of the things that both Roosevelt and Eccles and others implored him to do, we would have recovered much more quickly, according to not only Eric Rauschway, but also other historians. Uh, David, it seems to me there have been some rather odd transitions. One of the ones that occurs to me is the one between Wilson and Harding, when Wilson was essentially incapacitated. Which transitions particularly odd uh, in your mind, in in a historical sense, which sort of uh, not quite perhaps in the the historical drama of Buchanan to Lincoln or Hoover to FDR, but in a more personal, complicated way? Well, many of them are personal. So even Hoover and Roosevelt, they hated each other. They despised each other. They were actually friends when they were younger. And they were only a few years apart, uh, even though Hoover looked a lot older than Roosevelt. But in the car ride up to the Capitol, the famous car ride where presidents ride together, Hoover wouldn't talk to Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt tried to make a little chit chat, but Hoover wouldn't talk. So Roosevelt basically turned away and just smiled to the crowd and waved. There have been four transitions where the outgoing president did not attend the incoming president's inauguration due to personal animus or some other reason. And those were the two Adams, so John Adams and John Quincy Adams, Andrew Johnson, and Donald Trump. And, you know, (laughs) Biden actually said when Trump announced that he was not going to be at the inauguration, he said, I'm happy about that. But in hindsight, it would have been a good thing for Trump to be there because just the image of him being there, accepting the outcome of the, of the will of the American people, being on the stage when Biden took the oath of office, the imagery of that in the symbol of the, uh, the symbolism of that sends a very important signal to the American people that the will of the American people has been accepted and the outgoing, even if the outgoing does not like the outcome of the election, accepts the outcome and acknowledges and wishes the new president the best. That's the best tradition of the United States. Even Al Gore, who lost a bitter election to George W. Bush in 2000, one that was decided by one vote in the Supreme Court, 
after there was litigation over 537 votes in one state, Florida, and Florida gave Bush, per the Supreme Court, 270 electoral votes. Even Al Gore gave a very, very gracious concession speech where he said, I don't agree with the outcome of this election, but I acknowledge the outcome is real and I wish the new president, George W. Bush, Godspeed and wish his presidency a success. That's the way that, that outgoing, that lose, losing candidates should approach the concession. That's the way it's traditionally been done. Nixon did the same uh, with Kennedy, even though that election was very close and many of his advisors were encouraging him to contest the outcome of the election. And Trump is the first president since Andrew Johnson not to attend the... But it was slightly Russell. different. I mean, Nixon wasn't president. So Eisenhower was handing over power to Kennedy. So Nixon wasn't really involved in that. I mean, he was the well, vice president. But he did on election night can issue a concession statement, which Trump never did. He did reject the encouragement of his advisors to do what Trump did. The Nixon election was actually much closer than the Trump-Biden uh, election. Yeah, and many and of his advisors probably. I mean, it seems like there's a better argument to suggest that the Nixon election, that the Kennedy-Nixon election, was corrupt versus that the Trump-Biden election. Um, let's talk about the three or four months uh, transition in, in power in between uh, November and and, uh, and January, um, David. Um, in my view, at least, January 6th represents the last hope for, for Trump. He failed on every front. In your view, in terms of this transfer of power, what are the, what are the most dangerous moments for democracy in terms of um, the rise of violence of one kind or another or just the breakdown of the system? Is it early after the election or is it closer to... Uh, the inauguration, or, or, or is it wrong to to break it down in terms of dates? Is every every transition different from from every other? I think the most vulnerable. It's a great question. The most vulnerable period, based on the work of our book, is right after the election. I mean, right after the inauguration, a new president is in. He does not have his full team in place. They're gaining muscle memory. They're learning the ropes and they don't have access to the full team. So let's go back to the George W. Bush administration. He had 37 days compared to the normal 75 or 77 days because of the litigation in Bush v. Gore, which was decided on December 12th or 13th. He comes in office January 20th, and eight months after he takes office, 9-11, okay? The worst attack in the United States since Pearl Harbor. On that date, Bush only had 57% of his national security officials in place around the agencies, 57%. And half of those people that actually were in place had been in place for only two months. So the 9-11 Commission, when they did their autopsy of what went well and what didn't go well on 9-11, concluded that the, the transition period, because it was shortened, impaired Bush's ability to get his national security team in place, and that compromised our national security red readiness. That's one of the reasons why Bush, eight years later, when he was leaving office, said, I don't want the next guy to face what I faced. I want the next person to have his team in place, 
to get a jump start, to have a smooth transition. And I want to do whatever I can to lay out the red carpet for my successor, whether he's a Democrat or Republican, to launch on January 20th and get his or her team in place. And that helped. Obama had a faster start in getting personnel in place than any other president in American history, including Biden. But what about the collapse of democracy itself, which is seems like what Trump wanted, and actually in his um, pronouncements in the last few days, he's made that more and more explicit, that he wants to shut down American democracy. If you've got another former president, uh, an administration on their way out, like Trump, who seems to simply want to close American democracy down, um, what are the what are the reforms we need to make to, to ensure that that isn't going to happen? So Trump is an aberration in history. We've had some bad presidents. <laughs> I hope so, David. We've had some bad presidents. We've had presidents that didn't want to leave, but we've never had anybody that's done what Trump did. Nobody has contested the election. Nobody has incited a riot. Um, those are Mitch McConnell's words, not my words. Um, and nobody has done what Trump has done, even as recently as last week, where he basically said the Constitution should, should be suspended so I can become president. So I'm hopeful that this his presidency is an asterisk in history and not something that's repeated. I do think that the country showed in the last election, whether you're a Democrat or not, that those who denied the outcome of the election did not win in the midterm elections. Right, so I the midterms of 2022, yeah, I think yes. that seems to have been the case. Although there are also a significant major minority of voters, 30, 40% of Americans who seem to mostly buy what Donald Trump is saying. I agree. It's very scary and it's very dangerous. And the more we learn about what happened on January 6th during those terrible days, the, the worse it is. I just read uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book on Trump. Yeah, Peter and uh, Susan were on the show. And, you know, I thought I knew everything about the Trump presidency because, you know, we read so much and we were obsessed with the news. But what I learned in that book was scary. And I actually told Peter and Susan that it kept me up at night after reading a couple of the chapters of that book, including January 6th and also the Russia chapter in the book, Anybody, sh everybody should read that book. It's it's a scary book. So what am I going to do, uh, David? Uh, I'm supposed to argue that January 6th wasn't an existential threat to an American democracy. Is there a case to be made or is it clearly was it clearly an existential threat? Well, I think our institutions are very, very strong. They were bent, but they didn't break. You saw what General Milley did. You saw that the armed forces. Right. I agree. So I actually don't think it was an existential threat. I think that what he did was a threat to our democracy and an aberration. It was, you know, criminal acts took place. You saw that, uh, you know, convictions were just uh, occurred for sabotage. Um, and I think it's an aberration in history. You know, to have the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff research and have his team research what happens if there's a coup attempt in the United States. That's scary. That's what Peter Baker and Susan Glasser describe in their book. That I don't think has ever happened in American history and hopefully it won't happen again. Yeah, the idea of um, colonels or tanks 
in Washington, D.C., seizing power is a particularly chilling one. It seems General Miley, I think, was the the great hero. Of course, that happened before the transfer of power. That's another book, another story. Congratulations, David, on this new book, a fascinating um, series of chapters with some, some wonderfully um, colorful characters. As I said, everyone from James Baker and Andy Card to Chris Christie. You didn't get Donald Trump, but I don't suppose he would contribute to this kind of book. But apart from that, you've got most of the main players. Uh, David, congratulations. Uh, finally, if there's one reform that we need, maybe not, as you suggested, that hopefully Trump was a one-off, uh, just so bizarre on so many levels. But if there's one reform to this transfer of power that you would suggest, having written this book and had so many conversations about it with prominent figures involved in the transition, one reform, what would it be? It would be to vest more authority with civil servants in the transition of power. This is what happens in other countries, as you referred to. So political officials have enormous amount of authority on the quality and the level of cooperation between the outgoing and the incoming. And if one vested more authority with civil servants, it would ease the transfer because civil servants are not loyal to one party or one president. They're loyal to the constitution and they're loyal to the function which they serve. And that would be a, that would help ensure that there's a much smoother transfer of power in the future. Well, David, I, I think you, you, you built a case for yourself. I know you've got a big job at uh, American University, but can you be that civil servant running the show in terms of the peaceful transfer of power? Do we need you, I, David? I have done eight years in government. It was a privilege working for two presidents, and I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. And I've enjoyed this, this podcast as well.